0: What I love about psychedelics is that they can remind you of who you truly are under the surface, your essence of really who you are and or help you find that person.
1: Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition.
2: What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and check movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life.
1: Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to
2: episode 103 of the Biohacker Babes. I am Lauren joined by my sister Renee. Hello everyone. Super excited to be here today. We have a guest for you, Dr. Molly Malouf, who we've been looking forward to chatting with for quite some time. We were first introduced to her work because, as you know, we're obsessed with blood sugar optimization and CGMs, and we found her because she was speaking a lot about this. She was in a lot of um, virtual conferences, and she's been quite an advocate for it. And Interestingly enough, she has been incorporating CGMs into her practice for a very long time, using CGMs with a healthy population, which is still kind of controversial, crazy, but now it's exploding and and becoming quite trendy, but she's been doing this work for a while. We were really excited to talk to her about her concierge medicine practice because she is now using some ketamine assisted therapy. So, she has lots to share about raising consciousness and dealing with personal trauma, even some sexual trauma with women. So, we touch on a lot of different topics today.
1: Yeah. Super fascinating things that we learned from her today. And and it's always great just to talk to another female biohacker. I think she's really like been leading the way in this industry for a while. And like you said, with the CGMs, I think she said 2014, she started using them. I'm like, whoa, like even here we are in <laughs> 2021, I still have clients telling me that their doctors will not give them a CGM, which is just yeah, crazy. So is. I love that she's been leading the way with that. And I'm I'm so fascinated with the whole world of dealing with trauma and like she said, this epidemic of especially sexual trauma for women that's just not being talked about because it really isn't. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate the work that she's doing and can't wait to keep learning more from her and especially the new therapy options. I think it's a really, really exciting time for everyone. So Absolutely.
2: And I just have to tag on if you enjoyed... Episode 100, where we talked about anti aging. I just think this is so serendipitous, but Dr. Molly created a course about extending health span to lengthen lifespan, which we just realized. And I just think that is so interesting. She has done so much work on this. So if, if you enjoyed that podcast, she has so much more to share about lengthening health span. So check that out. And she just got a book deal. So lots more to come from Molly. We'll share her resources at the end. And anything else, Renee? Her amazing bio. (laughs) Okay. So Dr. Molly's mission is to radically extend health span, the number of years free from disease or disability, and maximize human potential by promoting wellness lifestyles that generate optimal health. She is a lecturer within the wellness department of the medical school at Stanford University, where she created a course entitled Live Better Longer Extending Health Span to Lengthen Lifespan. There you go. Shaping the future of healthcare in her pioneering Silicon Valley medical practice and working with leading companies. Dr. Molly Malouf is on the frontier of personalized medicine, medical technology health optimization, and scientifically-based wellness endeavors. Since 2012, she has also worked as an advisor or consultant to more than 45 companies in the digital health, consumer health, and biotechnology industries, needing help with clinical strategy, product development, clinical research, and scientific marketing. In her concierge practice, Dr. Molly provides health optimization and personalized medicine to high-achieving entrepreneurs, investors, and technology executives in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, as well as award-winning Hollywood actors and musicians. Unveiling the future of patient care with actionable insights on adopting the latest practices in personalized medicine, Dr. Molly challenges healthcare practitioners as well as industry influencers to rethink health and healthcare in order to reduce costs, improve patient outcomes, and improve the human condition. I especially love that last bit. I cannot wait for you to meet Dr. Molly. Let's bring her on. Welcome, Dr. Molly, to the Biohacker Babes.
0: Thanks for having me
2: so excited to have you covering the country today. You're in Florida. I'm in, where am I? I'm in North Carolina. (laughs) Today's in
0: Vegas.
2: We're so excited to chat with you today. We first found you because of our investigations into blood sugar optimization. Turns out you're an amazing biohacker. You are an incredible health investigator, always searching for answers, but keeping an open mind. We love that so much about you and it seems like your personal health journey has really kept you on this trajectory and has also led you to your current practice of what we're really curious about is the psychedelic assisted therapies that you're doing so mm-hmm. you took the traditional medical path what was your journey from medical school to like uh, you know being introduced to consciousness and now what you're you're currently doing in your practice
0: well um it's a pretty long story so i'm going to try to shorten it but let's just <laughs> put it kind of succinctly. I wanted to be a doctor since I was a child. And I got to the point of becoming a doctor and I found it to be for the most part a nightmare. <laughs> so I decided to sort of chart my own course. And I ended up leaving my residency halfway through to start my own medical practice and work at a tech a tech startup, which is where I ended up meeting a bunch of doctors in Silicon Valley who were essentially like doing medicine differently. So one of some of them were like being concierge doctors. Um, Other ones had like a mind-body element to their practices. Other ones were just doing health optimization for executives. And I realized that there was this new way of doing medicine and I didn't have to do medicine the way I was being taught necessarily. I could actually think about it differently. And so that's where my practice kind of emerged from. I'm now in this really interesting inflection point because I'm now like taking a lot of what I've been working on over the last eight years and I'm turning all this stuff into different systems that are going to be able to reach more people. So I've got a friend who's helping me turn my system of questionnaires, which is about 120 pages of questions into some software I've got, and, and, and basically turn all my laboratory interpretation, you know, tables into software as well. And then I've also, um, dipped my toes into entrepreneurship. I started a supplement company last year. I'm in the process of selling it and I'll, or I'll stand as an advisor. I worked with like about 45 different companies in the last eight years as a advisor or a consultant so I've got a ton of experience in entrepreneurship and I also still have a medical practice and still work with people one-on-one to help them optimize their health I use a very data-driven approach I'm a very big believer in laboratory testing and continuous monitoring of different metrics I was one of the first doctors to ever put cl- continuous glucose monitors on healthy people um, in 2014 was actually the first year that I started using CGM and now where there's like there's like 10 companies in the space that are trying to create software so I've always been kind of a futurist and somebody who's been on the bleeding edge of what's new. And now I'm in, and I'm I'm I've got a pretty cool brand called Dr. Molly. The the full brand name is Dr. Molly Media Co. And then I've also got a book deal with Harper Waves. I'm writing a book on biohacking for women, and I'm starting a biotech company that's in stealth.
2: Wow. Congratulations wow. to all of those things. It's quite inspiring. Really awesome. Yeah. Sounds like you're very, very busy. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> thanks for taking an hour out of your day to chat with us. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned yeah. Silicon Valley and, you know, I, I mean, we follow Dave Asprey and we've seen some of the things that are coming out, but there's definitely some game changer things happening there. What What's kind of the latest and the newest thing going on?
0: I mean, I'd say that like the world of trying to predict and prevent disease before it becomes full-blown illness is really powerful still. And it's like a lot of cool stuff's happening. So it's still really expensive, but there's a couple companies that I started using in my practice. One's called Grail, and they're targeting, uh, it's like a, it's basically like the equivalent of what's called a blood biopsy. It's a blood test that can help detect different, 50 different types of cancer, um, at stage one. And then there's a company called Prenuvo, which is a next generation MRI test that can identify cancers at, at a centimeter. And so uh, I'm I'm if you can afford to spend a few K a year on, not necessarily every year, but if you can spend if you really if you've got a really strong family history of cancer and you're particularly worried about potentially having it yourself, like these are some really interesting ways to uh, screen for yourself and potentially your family members. So that's wow. pretty neat. And then I guess, yeah, I'd start with that. That's probably the cool stuff. And then just like the democratization yeah. of continuous monitoring is really cool. I think that there's a movement towards, there's definitely a war between the mainstream system who doesn't believe that healthy people should wear CGMs <laughs> and yeah. then the, like the startup space, which is like, no, actually they're extremely valuable and you can learn a lot about yourself if you put a blood sugar monitor on. I'm obviously bullish to the latter, but... <laughs> You know, I think there's also just a general acceptance that like getting more data on your body and learning about your body through information can help you at least take advantage of some preventive measures and change your nutrition and change the way that you live in order to optimize your health. So that's something I would um definitely recommend everyone continue looking into is just ways that you can learn about your body through data.
2: Yeah, yeah. We're, We're definitely on that train as well. I think prevention is overlooked and we love the CGM lifestyle. And I I I agree with you. I think it's kind of crazy that some doctors are like saying that it's not worth their time. I certainly have learned a ton about myself and my personal needs with my CGM. But I also see like the data, the quantification can almost be a little overwhelming at times if you don't have that critical eye or don't have someone to assist you through that. So I think that's such a great part of your practice is that you're using the laboratory testing. But there really is like such a subjective and very careful, intentional look at what's happening in someone's life, what's going on with stress and trauma trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about how you incorporate that into your work? Like how do you even begin with a client before you do the lab testing? I mean
0: every every single person that I talk to, I ask, have you done any work on trauma? And usually people say, I have trauma but I have, you know, I, I and I have done some work on it, but not everybody is aware of the trauma that they have and not everybody has like big T trauma. Some people have little T trauma. But I think you're I think really understanding your core wound is extremely important for understanding your psychology around how you behave in terms of your health behaviors. Like we, we make decisions subconsciously all the time that we don't even think about. Like we think about, like if you think about just how many people make these unconscious eating decisions because they're stressed out and they just are grabbing food to, to just like satiate their discomfort and who they are. So few people actually look under the surface and ask themselves, well, why am I grabbing that food? Or why am I grabbing that alcohol, frankly? There's a lot of women who just drink excessively and don't know how to sit still quietly by themselves without having alcohol. And that's partially because there's unresolved trauma that they're trying to cover up with by num- by numbing. So I, I really just think it's so fundamental for people to, to get healthy. You have to sort of raise your consciousness. And to raise your consciousness, you really need to think about your body and your mind and your spirit, not just your biology, not just the numbers on the scan. You know, if, if I look at a blood sugar monitor and it's really got high vi- variability, I'm not just going to look at what they're eating. I'm going to ask myself, what's going on in your life? Where is that stress coming from? You know, wh- where's the unresolved stress in your life? Wh- what can you do about that? So I really do recommend most people have a therapist if they haven't worked with one. Um, I do ketamine-assisted therapy in my practice. I, I require people to work with therapists. Some people choose not to, and they do sort of self-guided integration work, which is, is still very powerful. But I think personal de- development is, is and should be a, a a bigger part of healing. So I, I recommend all sorts of questionnaires that I give my clients on, you know, how you can get to know yourself and your values and your purpose and things like that.
2: Wow, I love that so much. I mean, it, it can be such an obstacle to healing if you're not dealing with that. I'm thinking about a client- I worked with recently she you know was always grabbing for food when she was stressed I was like what happens if you don't and she was like oh man I just sat there and cried I was like awesome (laughs)
0: wow so so difficult to feel her feelings
2: yeah it's crazy what happens when you just like make yourself be still so I'm so glad that you brought that up so so powerful
0: I mean it's such hard work though I mean being able to sit with difficult feelings It was easily one of the most challenging, it was definitely the last two years, probably the biggest breakthrough I made, not fighting against the resist, like not resisting the pain, but like feeling it all, you know, that's really, that's really hard work. Not everybody's ready for it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I hear this a lot from people that, you know, I don't have any trauma. I had a great childhood and I've had a great life. I don't have any trauma. How do you kind of open this idea to people? Is it something that comes out through the questionnaire?
0: I mean, you may not have quote unquote big T trauma, but if I give you like three questionnaires, I give people three questionnaires on stress. And one of them is this like, you know, Holmes Raw rating scale. And it's basically a scale of like stressful life events. And it it shows you the likelihood of you ending up with a, you know, an illness in the next year, because we know that stress degrades your immune system and and causes you to cause people to get sick. The second thing is, and and by the way, a lot of people don't realize this, but success is a massive stressor. So even if your life is going really, really great and like you're getting married and you're, you're getting a promotion and you're, or you're starting a company, it, that's actually incredibly stressful too. Now, having low perceived stress is actually a lot better than having high perceived stress, but I think it's important to have an understanding of your sources of stress so that you can do something about your recovery. So like when I'm, when I'm recovering from significant stress, I let myself sleep like eight to 10 hours instead of eight hours. And I get extra sleep to heal. I also just like think that a lot of people have stress warning signals and their body's actually screaming at them, pay attention to me and they're not listening. So I give people a stress warning signal questionnaire and that helps them understand, oh yeah, like I'm actually totally ignoring my body's signals. I also have people fill out just like a general health questionnaire that I actually got from this um, Dr. Robert Iveker who wrote this book, The Sinus Survival. And I've kind of modified it for my practice, but basically it goes into the 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 biology and the mind and the spiritual facets of of health and there's quite a lot of people who like maybe had great childhoods but have very very little meaning in their life and lack of meaning and purpose could be hugely problematic for optimal health so I I actually dig into that the, those facets for them and um and then there's obviously like the perceived stress scale which is like Maybe your stress isn't that bad, but like you are freaking out about it constantly. And then there's a mismatch and you have to learn to train yourself to sit with difficult emotions. Helping people at least uncover also the consequences of stress. So there's a, a couple of questionnaires I use. One's an executive s- skills questionnaire and the other one is a mood brain questionnaire. And these are basically helping me identify like what are some of the sequelae of a person's high stress life? It can be brain dysfunction. And so a lot of people, you can kind of get them to engage in healthier behaviors by showing them that like, Hey, look! Like it's actually affecting your brain function. Your brain function, the way you're living. Like, why don't we do some things differently so we can give you better functioning? So, yeah, that's kind of the way I kind of talk to people about that stuff. It's really also important to give people the the adverse childhood experience questionnaire because, for example, like somebody that's very close to me, I was clearly realizing they were not processing their trauma from their childhood very well, and it was really affecting their daily functioning. And I was like, can I just like give you a quick questionnaire? And I went through the ACE questionnaire with them. And they have three ACEs and like any ACEs increases your risk for chronic disease, but three ACEs is a lot of ACEs. Adverse childhood experiences significantly increase your risk for addiction, for chronic diseases, for all sorts of problems. And this is a person who struggles with alcohol. And so I was kind of like, well, you may act like you have no trauma, but it turns out you have serious trauma and like, you didn't even realize it. And you probably should get a therapist, but like you can lead a horse to water. Not everybody's going to actually go do the work.
1: Yeah. 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 I I love all of that. Um, the, the thought about perceived stress, funny story two days ago, I was having a really stressful day and my husband was like, how can you change your perspective of what's happening right now? I was like, Oh, I was like impressed that he asked me that. Like he's not in the (laughs) health space at all. Thank (laughs) you, Dr. Ryan. Um, and I was like, that was like a really good wake up call. Like, even though I'm in this world and I feel like I understand a lot about it, just hearing that. And I was like, Oh, you're right. Like I am just over Overthinking the stresses that are maybe not that stressful. We're
0: all victims well, we of that do sometimes. That all the time. Yeah. I mean, another thing I would add is that a lot of us who, who struggle with just like day-to-day stressors. Like I actually last week had a massive breakthrough with a friend who it was like two friends actually. One one's a coach and one's like a friend who's a coach. And he was like, Molly, how many things are you trying to multitask? And I was like, everything. And he was like, Yeah, stop doing that. And so I started doing one task at a time. And I'm like, holy shit. I got so much done in one week. Like I, the stuff that it took yeah. me a month to get done before is taking me a week to get done. I mean, how many people are actually just wasting energy, freaking out about the not, amount of stuff that they have to do. And they're actually distracting themselves, trying to do so many different things all at once when really all they could do is just sit down and do one thing at a time and they'd get it done.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a great point. Hard agree to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent with that. So as far as the, the therapy, so, so you have therapists in your practice that you recommend
0: I, I just recommend work or... people, I contract out with people, you know, like yeah. I, I give people names of therapists that I work with that I, I think are great, you know, cause like at the end of the day, I can, I'm a pretty darn good sort of, I, I can do the job of a therapist, but I'm not a classically trained psychotherapist. So I feel like I shouldn't be doing that necessarily. So I, I, I do a ton of coaching, but coaching and counseling is not really the same thing as like actual being a trained clinical psychotherapist. And when somebody really is struggling with depression and anxiety, they need to work with somebody who's like a licensed psychotherapist. Now, if somebody's like just struggling with day to day stress and they just like are a busy entrepreneur and they don't have a di- diagnosis and they're not clinically, you know, it's not clinically affecting their work life or their home life, like, you know, I feel comfortable. I can work people through a lot of stuff. It's really just important to know what your skill set is and what you're best at and then know when to send someone to someone else who's better than you in an area that you maybe weren't trained in.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think that's the biggest rule in the health industry, no one to refer out. I I really experienced that. I got into doing neurofeedback for a little bit and there were some cases where I felt like I was able to really help them and then others where I was like, you really need a trained clinical psychotherapist and I'm not doing it anymore because I just felt like, again, sticking to my specialty and what I'm really good at and letting other people do what they're good at. So I think that is really important.
0: Um, I just actually, I'm I'm on, I'm on number 15 of neurofeedback right now. And I've I've got like maybe five sessions left and I've been amazed at neurofeedback. I I think it's totally, I mean, it took me years to finally sign up for it, but I really think it's amazing for brain function.
1: Yeah. Which one are you doing? Which system?
0: Uh, This company called Minerva, they send you a home, a home EEG kit and cap. And you you know, I've got my gel right here and you put this like, you put the gel onto your hat that's the fun part on the cap, and oh, it's horrible! It just takes—it's fr- like ten <laughs> minutes of your day. You're just like putting gel on your head, so annoying. But um, yeah. I'm almost done, and I'm really happy with the results. Like I've noticed better executive function, better memory, better just overall sense of just like well-being. It's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, so that's cool. cool. I Very haven't cool. heard of that system. I'll have to look that one up.
0: It's a company. They 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 use a system, but it's a company that like sends you a system.
1: Oh, okay. Awesome. So, speaking of
2: stress and trauma, obviously, this is showing up in our biology and affecting our our health span, which we hope is as long as our lifespan. But in this country, we know that's not the case. We're curious about your work with women specifically and what's happening with stress and trauma specific to women, maybe sexual trauma. I know you're doing some work on this.
0: Yeah. The first thing I will say is we have an epidemic we're not even talking about. And there's two, actually two really important epidemics we're not talking about. The first is just the fact that there's one in five women are sexually assaulted, or actually one in five women are raped in her lifetime. One in four women are sexually abused as children. One in three women are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. That's a lot of problems in our society. And the Me Too movement is just the beginning of even, even bringing to the surface how much harder it is to be a woman than men realize. Let alone having like the stress of being moms and queer women now and having to like freeze our eggs so that we can prolong our fertility, having to, having to bear, you know, just, just, there's so many things that we have to do that men don't realize are traumatizing. But the biggest one is the sexual trauma directly. And I have started to realize that like, I think that a lot of women aren't always able to hear what their bodies are telling them and a lot of it is that we su- we suppress a lot of our trauma because we don't really want to deal with the things that suck like nobody wants to actually talk about the fact that they were raped in college right like we actually bury our trauma because it's a, it's like an adaptive mechanism for us to essentially try to try to try to cope so i've been kind of digging into figuring out okay so like What's the root of all this? Where does all this come from? And it's a vicious cycle of like people who are traumatized as, the, as children or in teens become traumatized but they become abusers as adults sometimes sometimes not always, but sometimes. Mm. um so there's a lot of children who grow up to, who, who are abused and neglected and they grow up to be adults that 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 cause problems. and it's not always the case. There's also a lot of women who just aren't able to even discuss that like like let's say there's something that's happening to them. With a, with a partner, and they're actually not even. A lot of women can't even speak up about what makes them uncomfortable. You know, things happen when women get drunk and when they go to parties, and maybe they're maybe they're like intoxicated or potentially even incapacitated at times because a lot of college girls black get blackout drunk, and in those positions, we set up we, we're very vulnerable and we could set ourselves up set ourselves up for getting harmed. So I think that there's like a few different ways that we need to approach this problem. One of the ways is. We need some solutions for actually healing the trauma and and MDMA assisted therapy and psychedelic assisted therapy, I think is one route. Another thing is, is we need to actually start properly educating college girls and even men. We need to do a much more effective job at at raising children and raising teenagers who don't repeat the same problems that their predecessors have repeated. We really need to build a society that just is much more peaceful and less violent towards each other. And I think a lot of it comes down to just educating everybody around like the Scope of how big of an issue this is. There's a lot of other conditions that are related to trauma, things like chronic pain, things like autoimmune conditions, things like interstitial cystitis, which I didn't realize had a had, has a massive link to sexual trauma. And so, what I kind of think a lot of women don't get is that their bodies are often telling them things through their physiology, but actually underneath the surface, it was actually an emotional injury that that really, or even a physical injury, but typically it's like this sort of um, emotional injury that that is actually causing some disease. And it's not always the case. Not every single woman who has trauma actually has physical ramifications of it. But yeah, I think this is just like a, it's almost like a Pandora's box that you open it, open it up. You're like, oh my God, literally there's this like huge problem that nobody's talking about. And I'm just beginning to really understand the scope and the, the, the breadth of how big of an issue it is. And it's actually a bigger issue in countries that have more paternal, paternalistic societies. Like we're pretty lucky. Like we, we have a society that's aiming towards equality, but mm-hmm. countries that are mostly run by men the sexual trauma research is way higher. Sexual dysfunction is much higher in these countries. Yeah, I'm starting to really realize, like, oh my god, there's like so much, so many problems to solve in our lifetime. And I think wow. that hopefully we can have some new medicines that are, they're going to come to market that gonna that are, will enable us to like do really good therapy that will get under the surface of the pain rather than at the surface. Because I think the biggest, the, one of the biggest problems with therapy today is that people are too afraid to actually talk about the things that really plague them. And they don't trust their therapists. They don't trust themselves to actually open up. And because of that, they carry all this pain under the surface and it causes, I think it comes out in disease.
2: Well, we're avoiding pain. So if we crack that egg open, it's just more pain.
0: Louise Hay is amazing. And she wrote this book, You Can Heal Your Life. And I'm not a full believer that like, uh, there's always, I mean, there's always, psych- I, I do believe there's always a psychological component to, to disease. I don't think it's necessarily always causative. But I do think that like when your psychology is in deep pain and struggle, you tend to see people get sicker and then sickness compounds the pain and struggle because now you are in a place of deep discomfort. It's like I said, like, I don't want people to come out, come out, come out of this talk saying, oh yeah, because I had that trauma means that I have all these health problems or because I have this unresolved pain, I have cancer. Like, I don't want people to think that that's how this works, but I do think it's important for people to understand that there's a relationship between our emotional pain and our, physio- our physiology. And the way that I kind of conceptualize this is this concept of m- mitochondrial allostatic load. So, Martine Picard has done a lot of research on how just stress from every, every aspect of life contributes to mitochondrial dysfunction. And the way I kind of describe it is like your mitochondria are your batteries. And so, when we are under significant stress, that uses a lot of our capacity. And the batteries run out of juice after they've used up their, their capacity. Not that they're necessarily becoming dysfunctional as a problem, but it's a dysfunctional as a result of chronic stress. And so we now live these lives that are like chronically stressful, not because of running away from the same but because of this inner dialogue that we have, that's as a lot of women experience, like very negative. And there's just a lot of negative self-talk. There's a lot of this like running inner monkey monkey mind that just like runs the show for a lot of women's lives. And so they build up all of this emotional pain and then they express it really loudly and angrily towards those that they love. And it's usually under the surface, There's they were triggered by something that actually was a traumatic experience. Like something that actually triggers a traumatic experience in their life that they didn't deal with, right? And the reason why I know all this is like the more that I actually work on myself, the more that I actually work on my own personal traumas, the easier it is for me to actually behave the way that I want in life. The easier it is for me to actually be kind to myself the easier it is for me to actually silence that inner monkey mind and have a better sense of vitality because I don't have this negative energy in the background draining my brain cell, my brain function. You know, And that's where psychedelics come in is they dig under the surface into your subconscious and they help you actually get through the pain by actually being able to face it from a place of love and not from a place of fear and self-loathing and anger. All of those emotions may come up it's a lot easier to process them when you're in a place of, in some cases, feeling a deep sense of love and connection to, to something greater than yourself. But again, when it comes to psychedelics, it all comes down to the set and the setting and the people that you do it with and how prepared you are for the experience and what you intend to do to integrate.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> experience that. <laughs> yeah, Both sides. Yeah. So how does someone even learn like, where to get started with us?
0: Yeah. Like anywhere I mean, the in the country. Is, is. I mean, I'll just tell people where I started. I started just reading. So I was like in the library. I, I worked in the history and philosophy library at the University of Illinois. And I found an entire section of books, like this thick, all on the history of drugs. And I was like, oh my God, I found this like super cool section. So I checked out all the books and I kept them in my room for like six months. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I read them so all. Awesome. <laughs> I was a bad girl in the library. I used to like check books out for way longer than you should because I like worked in the library. So I had that. I had that ability, but, um, <laughs> that is a risk worth taking. <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring all the books back because I had to like, I wanted to get through them all. So anyways, <laughs> I recommend just starting to read and read and read and read and read until you feel like you have a, a general understanding of what these things do. And they do a lot of things, right? Like they, they increase global connectivity in the brain. They, they tone down the default mode network. they, Provide you a sense of mystical experience and unity. They sometimes provide you with a sense of unconditional love. They alter your perception. They can give you a sense of synesthesia. They do a lot of different things. And fundamentally, what they do is they alter your consciousness. And so in a state of altered consciousness, oftentimes what I have found and seen clinically is that people's trauma comes up. And specifically, specifically, people's unresolved trauma comes up. And it brings it to the surface, enabling you to actually recognize that it's a problem it's a problem that you can actually do something about, something you can work on, something you can actually get help for. One of the things that's so cool about psychedelics, and specifically ketamine, is like we actually have legal psychedelics available right now. And we also have pathways for people to get these medicines that we never had before. Like you can literally go to Mind Bloom and get like prescription ketamine from a doctor, deliver it to your home, which is cool. Huh. And in these, in these, you know, states of of ultra consciousness, you can really develop a new relationship to yourself. Ketamine is a disassociative. And for a lot of people who suffer from being unable to detach themselves from their thoughts, feeling their emotions, being able to disassociate from them for a moment can actually give you this sense of, oh my God, I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my emotions. These These are temporary states of existence, but these are not who I am. And so what I love about psychedelics is that they can remind you of who you truly are under the surface, your essence of really who you are and or help you find that person. I mean, like a lot of people use psychedelics to find themselves. I personally have used meditation just as much as I have other tools. And so I don't think psychedelics are the only thing that you can use, but um, not everybody's willing to go sit for 10 days and like get under the surface <laughs> of their pain. <laughs> I do recommend if yeah. you are a meditator and you have, and you've never done a 10 day meditation, it's totally recommended, but you should be sure to like, it's kind of like training for like a 5k or, a, or like a marathon. Like, you don't really just go run a marathon without doing training. Like go do your meditative practices and then do an actual meditation retreat because meditation retreats can be just as powerful as psychedelics can be. But, um, sure. training your mind to
2: create EMT naturally rather than just ingesting it. That's
0: quite a skill. I mean, there's actually a place you can go in the world where there's few places you can go in the world where you can do completely dark retreats where you're in total darkness and apparently after like a week of total darkness, you get this massive DMT hit. I love it. I've never done it, but I'm crazy.
1: Oh, I was just saying my friend is going to go do the dark retreat up in Utah. I think is where it is. Oh, Neat. sign me up. I want to go. It's um, interesting.
2: So I'm curious about your experience and your practice with um, natural plant medicines versus synthetics. So like ayahuasca, mescaline versus MDMA, ketamine, how are you incorporating that into your practice? And if someone is just getting started and trying to learn about the history of drugs, which is like, just, there's so much there.
0: I mean, I unfortunately can't recommend plant medicines to people, even though I believe personally that they are transformative, but they are still technically illegal. However, I can say, look, if you go do some research, you'll find that there are places in the world that they're not illegal. Places like Amsterdam, places like the Synthesis Retreat in Amsterdam, Sultara in Costa Rica, there's like a mushroom retreat in Jamaica, and there's a lot of these places that you can go where things are getting decriminalized, like Denver and Portland, and even Cal- even Oakland. And so work on what's legal, because the last thing I want anyone to do is get themselves into trouble with the law. And then you know, obviously, education is really valuable. But I, I always tell people as well, like if you're going to go do plant medicine, you should choose your shaman like you would your neurosurgeon, because there's a lot of people who go down to, go down to Peru. And they have transformative experiences, but there's also people who go down to Peru and get totally taken advantage of by random people who aren't shamans, who just claim to be. It's Mm. just like so important because this stuff isn't fully regulated to do even more homework than you would do on choosing a neurosurgeon. Like really, really don't just like go land in someone's living room with a bedroom, like a living room shaman who you don't know. And who's just like telling you that they're going (laughs) to fix all your problems. That's a big no-no because I've seen people get harmed in that process. A lot of people just don't know how to properly dose medicine because of that, you can get, you can have major problems. Like, I mean, when people go and do Iboga or Ibogaine anywhere in the world, the shamans always let people know that you might die. Ibogaine is like well known to potentially cause death. So I just let everyone know that like, you should really know your medical history. You should know all the contraindications between this medicine and your medical history. There's a bunch of reasons why somebody shouldn't do ketamine, for example, a history of seizures, history of uncontrolled hypertension, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, potentially borderline personality disorder or other personality disorders may not be useful, as useful. If you don't know those contraindications, you might end up going to do, you might end up doing something that, that's not right for your body.
2: Mm-hmm. On in the other sense. side of that, who would be an ideal candidate? And what do you do to screen and make sure that that's the right path for someone?
0: I mean, I, I only use something called ketamine in my practice and I don't use it that often. So it's not like I, I mean, I have a whole... It's like a thirty eight page protocol. The first third of the protocol is screening and like preparation. And then I'd say another third of it is actually pro- like the the ritual of the medicine itself. and then a, uh, the last third of it is integration. So there's quite a lot of education that I do to prepare someone, but like I said, i don't I don't make recommendations for plant medicines, although I can tell a person that I think that they're potentially useful. I just I can't necessarily I can't actually recommend them because of the law.
1: Of course.
2: Yes. We respect that. So I'm just curious, Dr. Mali, where do you draw inspiration for personal development? Since this is such a part, a huge part of your practice and your journey.
0: Yeah. I mean, the first doctor that really got me interested in health versus disease was Andrew Weil. He was like a big influence of, of, on my life early on. But I mean, gosh, I get a lot of inspiration from... In terms of like personal development, like I said... You know, Louise Hayes kind of paved the way. She really taught me a lot about the intersection of our mind and our and our our disease states. Meditation teachers of mine have been really influential. This guy, Jorge Yant, who created this thing called K was very, very influential. And I would say that, like, gosh, I mean, I re- I read a really good book called Buddha Takes No Prisoners while I was at one of those meditation retreats, and that was pretty life-changing. But I'm kind of a seeker by nature. So I've always just been someone who wanted to figure out what's underneath the surface of everything. Like what's the why behind why I would do that. And everything kind of has led me back to, you know, what is really health about? Like what is underneath? What is health? And it's the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. It's how we bounce back from stress. It's how we are able to... It's how we're able to actually have resilience and capacity to handle the things that life hits us with. So I've really been on this mission to like figure out how to do that. And it started with food. It started with understanding nutrition because fundamentally nutrition and what we eat and what we breathe and the, and the water we drink all goes into our bodies and helps us run our metabolism, which creates the vital force that animates our life, animates ourselves through the mitochondria. What's interesting is that I started learning about stress because I was like, well, stress seems to be the one main thing that actually drains that capacity. And stress isn't good or bad. It's a part of life, right? But I wanted to figure out like, why do do all the doctors say that stress is like one of the biggest drivers of disease, but nobody says what to do about it? So I really dedicated a lot of time to figuring out, well, how do you master the stress response? How do you actually figure out ways to deal with your stress? And like one of the first things that I did was optimize my sleep because I think if you don't pay attention to your sleep, that everything, nothing really works. And then I got really interested in fitness because I was like, well, shit. I mean, if you don't exercise, you're not actually sending the signals to your body that you need to make more energy. So your body starts making less. And so I realized like how important fitness was. And then once I felt like I'd figured out the main drivers of biology, biological disease. I was like, so if people make the wrong decisions with their food and their lifestyle, because like well, all the time, well, why do they do that? And then I realized that like society generally kind of is engineering people. It basically a lot of the companies that sell people products and services are really trying to design experience. It basically, they're trying to make life easier and more convenient. But actually, to be really healthy, you need to make your your life harder, more difficult. <laughs> and that's what like the contradiction of health that like nobody really understands is that. To be healthy, you have to do the work. You have to actually work harder to be healthy than to be... that. You have to work just as hard to be healthy as you do to make your life convenient. And that's a, that's a different sort of mind shift. Is like You want to do the hard stuff to be healthier. You actually don't want to do the easy stuff to be healthier. And everybody wants the easy stuff, but the easy stuff doesn't really work. You have to be conscious. You basically, it all comes down to consciousness, right? Like You have to be conscious of how you're spending your day, how much you're sitting. You have to be conscious of what you're putting in your mouth. You have to be conscious of the thoughts that are going through your head. You have to be conscious of the people that you spend your time with and how they make you feel. You have to be conscious of the environment that you're living in and what that does for your health. And if you're not conscious of any of this stuff, then you're living an unconscious life. So I realized I should probably be dedicating my existence to conscious, like raising consciousness. That's really what's behind most people living lifestyles that creates disease. Is there unconscious behaviors that have been programmed into them through the media and through advertisements to make their lives unnecessarily easy? Because that's what sells. And if you actually look at the people that are most successful, they are working incredibly hard all the time. They're not, ta- They're not like life is not easier for them. The people that I've worked with that are most successful are actually incredibly diligently hardworking to the point where they, ap- they almost sacrifice everything for their success. So I think the, the sort of future of what we're trying to all achieve is like, how do we create a life that's both, sort of biphasic, right? You want to work really, really hard, but you want to recover just as hard and you want your life to go in and out of these cycles of really pressing your and, and and like actually trying to push your body towards challenging endeavors and challenging exercise and challenging fitness goals and ch- you know challenging yourself to eat in a way that's not the way everyone else eats but then also recovering from the stress recovering from the work doing things that make your life feel worth living spending your life in meaning, meaning, meaningful pursuits but spending time with people that really matter and that's really the key of all this i think Um, and that's what I figured out at least I still work too much, but, um, you know, I think if you have a problem with too much purpose, that's not a bad problem to have.
2: Absolutely. And I think we can all pull off the gas pedal from time to time, (laughs) but that's so true.
1: Balance
0: enhancing our consciousness
2: makes all of our choices just so much more valuable and purposeful. I think that's so important. Really well said.
1: Well, goodness, I feel like I learned a lot today and I have so much more to learn. (laughs) And I'm sure everyone listening feels that way too. So Dr. Molly, we're going to share your uh, social media. So Twitter, Instagram, your website, LinkedIn, so everyone can keep following you and learning more from you. Before we let you go today, we want to ask for one final piece of advice, something that people can start doing today to improve their health and wellness.
0: Um, One thing they can do. Is they can put a glucose monitor on and they can actually see what's happening when they eat food. And by looking Perfect. at what, what's actually happening underneath the surface, you can become aware of all the things that are actually causing damage to your blood vessels, but through those blood sugar spikes. And through that awareness, you can create these insight moments of, of, wow, I discovered something new about myself. And through that awareness and insight, you can create better behaviors. So that's kind of like the sort of cycle I, I've been really working with is like first you need to have awareness of the problem then you have to have some insights around how you can change and then you have to do something about it so cgm is a really great strategy for doing that and if you guys want I can send you my link to my sort of cutting the line at levels if people want to use the levels the levels app has like they' have like a hundred thousand person waiting list so I have an I have a link that we I have can one you too well yeah great yeah
2: I'm actually doing some work with levels so I think a lot of our audience members are are already into the levels train
1: so we're oh
0: good yeah so happy you are you're um
1: Advising
0: them, so I'm an advisor. That's rad. All right, cool. Oh yay!
1: Yeah, we love levels. I think the training that goes along with it is great, and just giving the accessibility to more people. So, all right, so get your CGM, track your data, learn as much as you can, be aware, increase your consciousness. Some great
2: life lessons. (laughs) And
0: And meditate. Totally dark retreat.
2: (laughs) I love it. Dr. Molly, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And thank you for everyone for tuning in. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.